And uh, the rest of us like to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. We're continuing in our series through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we're actually about two-thirds of the way through now. So we're in chapter 16. If you want to use one of the Bibles we provided for you, that'll be page 875 in those Bibles. And uh, we have just sung an awesome uh, hymn of the faith, a newer hymn, In Christ Alone. And in these words, no, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hands. I mean, I, I hope that that like enthralls your affections for God and, and prepares you to hear from this, this uh, true and living word uh, because <laughs> these are glorious truths and these are life-changing uh, truths. So uh, Luke 16 this morning, it is a packed chapter and uh, we should uh, learn much from Jesus and his words here. Well, tomorrow is uh, Patriots Day in New England, and it's also Marathon Monday. So um, 500,000 spectators will uh, line the streets from Hopkinton to Copley Square uh, in downtown Boston, and roughly 20,000 runners will make the trek, the 26.2-mile trek from Hopkinton to, to uh, Copley Square. Now, I know that, that for, for most of us in here, you're saying, you know, Tanner, um, right now in my life, I'm kind of like you. I'd be lucky just to get to the point two miles without even, you know, like running out of breath and looking like a fool, you know, on the, on the, on the race. So um, if that's you, then I can identify with you. You're thinking, man, I would rather, you know, run a mile over hot coals than run 26.2 miles and, you know, just for the, for the fun and the glory of it. But... That's not how long-distance runners view the, the Boston Marathon. I mean, the, the marathon is the crown jewel of long-distance running. It's, it's, it's the crown jewel because, one, it's, it's the oldest uh, running race, run, running marathon uh, in, 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 in the country, perhaps in the world. I'm not positive on that. But this is the 117th running. And it just so happens to have a, a prize purse for the winner of $150,000. And uh, if you beat the course record, then you get an extra twenty-five on top of that. Uh, I'd say that's pretty good for, you know, three hours of work, you know, so... Three hours, right? That's all it takes. Not, not, not quite. Okay, it says because one of one of the one of the questions every you know year around this time when the marathon comes, I'm always asking myself is what would it take to prepare yourself to run 26.2 miles? What, what what kind of preparation would be necessary to get that job done? I think any runner would tell us it, it takes. Uh, insane amounts of motivation, desire, and determination to be able to put the time in to discipline your body and train it to be prepared for this race. So, so runners have to be uh, unbelievably rigorous when it comes to nutrition and diet. They have to say no to, um, you know, products that, that aren't healthy for them. So they say no to, to caffeine. Uh, most of them say no to alcohol or tobacco. They say, say goodbye to fast food, natural sweets, carbonated products. Um, and they say yes then consequently to fruits and vegetables and maybe moderate you know, meat intake. And uh, it's just a, an incredibly you know, rigorous uh, diet that they, they uh, you know, engage in. Then beyond that, they, of course, need to get their rest, okay? So they're, they're um, you know, needing to go to bed early, uh, get up early so that they can train and put in, log these miles that, that are taking, you know, you can't run just, you know, five or 10 or 15 miles, you know, just in a few minutes. I mean, it takes time to do this. So this is, this is an incredible amount of training that goes into being able to build up your endurance to move from, you know, a 5K to a 10K to a half marathon and all the way up to that marathon level. Now, I want to read you uh, some, some commentary from a trainer named uh, Hal Higdon who talks about what it takes to prepare for the marathon. Okay, this is what he says. He says, the course starts at a height of 462 feet above sea level in Hopkinton, drops precipitously, particularly in the first mile and a half, rolls, descends again through about four miles, then flattens somewhat with a, an occasional hill before bottoming out at 49 feet 
above sea level at lower Newton Falls, which would be about the 16-mile uh, marker. Then begin a series of four hills, which Coach Bill Squires calls the Keller Chain, culminating in the infamous Heartbreak Hill at the 21-mile marker. It is not so much the height of the hills, because Heartbreak is only 236 feet above sea level, but where they come in the race that poses difficulty for marathoners who have failed to prepare for them. The final five miles to the finish line on Boylston Street present a steady, if sometimes unnoticed, descent to 10 feet above sea level, and it is here where the legs of unprepared runners take a beating. If you enter this stretch fatigued and unable to maintain running form, particularly if you're forced back on your heels, you will pound the muscles of your lower legs to pulp. This is why you see runners heading home at Logan Airport late on a Monday, walking with the stiff legs of the Frankenstein monster. It is also why their strategy descending stairs for a week after the race will consist of walking down those stairs backwards. The important message here is that to prepare for Boston and the aftermath of Boston, you must condition your legs by training. To fail in this regard is to invite injury and to ensure an inferior performance. So I want you to think about this, you know, tomorrow, okay? In the morning when the race starts through the two and a half, you know, hours roughly for some or the eight and a half hours for other or whatever it takes for these people, these 20,000 runners to get across the finish line, what it took for them to get there. It took incredible amounts of discipline, desire, and motivation, and I think the greatest motivation, I mean, we know that attached to the marathon are many worthy causes. Many of these runners raise money for different, you know, causes that are, that are very, very noble and should be applauded. But, but beyond those motivations, of course, the greatest motivation for a, for a marathon runner is what? It's the finish line, right? So they, they have put in all of this work, all of this, this energy so that they can reach their final destination, the finish line. Now, it's not surprising then that the authors of the Bible compare the Christian life to a race. And sometimes when we, we read those verses, we're thinking, well, we're talking about a 100 meter, a 200 meter, a 400 meter, you know, sprint. But in reality, the better picture would be that of a marathon. This is a, a long distance race that we are engaged in, the call to, to participate in as those who would wish to follow Christ. And it's, it's, a, it's a race that requires a lot of discipline, a lot of desire, a lot of motivation, a lot of faithfulness along the way to reach our final destination. And so this morning I want to talk about faithfulness, faith, and our final destination. This is what we're going to look at in Luke chapter 16. We'll cover the whole chapter this morning. And the main point that I want us to see this morning is this, that, that God calls us to faithful stewardship because eternity is at stake. Our final destination is at stake. So God calls us to faithful stewardship uh, with our lives. Now, uh, let's start in verses 1 through 9, and we'll jump right into uh, this chapter. This is a parable that Jesus says to his disciples, as verse 1 tells us. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. So let's just stop there and evaluate what's going on. There is a rich man who has a lot of material wealth. And he has set over his property and possessions a man, a manager, whom he has placed the utmost trust in to manage his possessions wisely. 
Unfortunately for this rich man, he gets wind that the manager has just gone, you know, bonkers and is wasting his possessions frivolously, and uh, he is not so happy about that, right? So he calls him into his office. He says to pack up your belongings. You know, he goes Donald Trump on him. Hey, you are fired. Turn in the balance sheets to your work, right? And this then places this manager in quite the predicament. I mean, not an unjust predicament, but a predicament nonetheless. And so then we see in verse 3, he's asking, well, what shall I do? In verses 4 through 7, lay out his master plan of what he will do. It says this, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, don't miss this phrase, people may receive me into their houses. So he summoned his master's debtors one by one. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So here's his, here's his exit strategy, okay? He's, he's worried about what's going to happen to him after he loses his job because on the one hand, he says, well, you know, I could go do manual labor and dig, but I'm too weak for that. And he says, you know, the, the other option is I could go and beg, but you know what, I'm, I'm too proud for that. And so what is he to do? Well, he devises this plan. I'll, I'll call in my master's debtors one by one. If you owe, you know, 100 uh, you know, gallons of, of oil. Actually, I'm, I'm sorry, what does it say? hundred um, measures of oil, which would uh, be the equivalent of 800 gallons of olive oil. All right, that would, that would equal about three years of, of wages for a day laborer. Um, he says, you know what, hey, how about you just cut that in half, pay 50, and we'll be good to go. And then, and then to the next person, he says, um, yeah, you owe 100 measures of wheat, that would have been about 1,000 bushels of wheat. He says, how about you just cut that down to 80 and we'll be good to go. And, you know, you're happy. I'm happy. I don't know about my master, you know, the rich man, but, you know, at least we're good here. And, you know, we'll deal with the rest later. Now, we would just imagine that the rich man, when he hears what the manager has done, is not going to like this very much. But verse 8 is the twist, the unexpected turn in the story. It says that the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What is this? I mean, what this is is one of the most perplexing parables in the whole Bible. And, and I think, you know, there are a variety of interpretations here. Hey, what's going on? Did he cut his own commission and he's pacifying, you know, the debtors and he's pacifying the master? That's probably not it because the theme here is dishonesty. Um, wh- wh- what's happening? Well, I think we just need to take the, the parable at face value and note that what he says is not a commendation of his dishonesty, but a commendation of his shrewdness. You know, we have to remember that when Jesus tells parables, what we often want to do with a parable is just press every single detail to, you know, glean a thousand different lessons from one particular teaching of Jesus, when really a parable was most of the time told so that one main point could be taken away from the story. So what main point is Jesus driving at when he says that the master, verse 8, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So the primary point here that Jesus is driving at is that we should prepare for the future wisely. He's saying that we who know God should be even more diligent and more shrewd in assessing the long-term effect of our actions than those who are concerned with earthly matters and material wealth in this life. So he's saying, you know, the the sons of this age, the sons of of this generation, get this at, at an earthly level. So how much more should those who follow Christ and know him be wise and even shrewd about how we live in the present so that we will be prepared for our future final destination? 
So as we work through this chapter, what we need to realize is that present faithfulness and, 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 and living life in a wise manner demonstrates that we are prepared and ready to meet God one day and stand before him and give an account. And so then in verse 9, Jesus begins to teach some very valuable lessons on stewardship and faithfulness. And he begins in verse 9 by, by saying to be generous to others so that you may receive a warm welcome by God and those who go before you uh, to, to make it to heaven. So verse 9 says, and I tell you, okay, so now Jesus shifts to really teaching what this parable is, is, is going to try to emphasize to them. He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, I take Jesus to mean here that it's through the generosity that we display to others that we should meet physical needs. Okay, there are physical needs all around us. And if God has blessed us materially to have the ability to take and to bless someone else, then we, of all people, should be the first in line to do so. But, but, but our approach at Redemption Hill is not to just kind of throw money out and meet physical needs without being also concerned about the greater needs in a person's life, that being their spiritual needs. So we're not just the kind of church that says, hey, you know, just read the Bible and everything's cool and we don't care about, you know, the fact that you can't put food on the table. But we're also not the church that says, hey, here's some food, but we don't care about your spiritual needs. We want to do both. And this is what seems to be going on here because Jesus says that when you come to the end of your life, when this unrighteous wealth fails, which what is unrighteous wealth? It's just wealth that belongs to this age, this realm, okay? There's nothing inherently good or evil about money. If you're attending our equipping class on Sunday morning, you've already learned that from John, okay? So if you're not in there, jump in next Sunday. But, um, but, but the point here being that wealth should be used to be a blessing to others because you're not going to be able to keep it forever when this unrighteous wealth fails you, which it will fail all of us. We can take nothing with us when this life is past. He says if you use it wisely, then you will be meeting people's physical needs and hopefully in the process meeting their spiritual needs so that when you come to die, you will be welcomed by heaven, God himself, and all those who you led to Christ along the way. So this is part of the first incentive of being a faithful steward over what God has entrusted to us. I mean, the primary focus in this passage, Luke 16, as we will see as we go throughout the chapter, is one of dealing with our material possessions, our money, our riches. But it doesn't only have to do with material possessions and riches. You see, God has entrusted so much to us in fact, we could say that everything that we have in life is a gift from him. So your very next breath is, is a gift from God to you. So as we, even as we focus on materials, possessions, and money, be thinking about the larger picture of your life, your relationships, your work, your time. How are you stewarding those things? Because what Jesus is going to, to, to always be concerned about, and this comes up again and again and again throughout the gospel, again, it comes up again here, is that however you steward your possessions, your wealth, your time, your relationship, your, your, your work, your marriage, your fill in the blank, all of this is actually a barometer to reflect the attitude and the faithfulness of a person's heart. What's going on the inside always manifests itself on the outside. And Jesus wants us to get that. So he's teaching these lessons about what it looks like to, to be a good steward, to be a faithful steward, so that you can live your life with the end in view because that is, after all, where we're all heading to this final de destination before God. So in verses 10 through 18, then, he is going to give us some lessons on responsibility, action, and faithfulness. And I've condensed them down to, to four for us on the, uh, the idea of faithfulness, all right? So, so number one, faithfulness begins with the small things. 
All right? God is concerned with the small things in our lives. I know we sometimes think, you know, hey, God is keeping score in heaven, and he's really just concerned about the major stuff, right? You know, like, hey, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't, you know, cheated on my spouse. And so, you know what? Man, I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. But, but in reality, God cares about the smallest of details. He even says, Jesus says in, in the Gospels, he says, look, you will give an account for every careless word that you speak. So, so, so the Bible says that, man, we will give an account for everything done in the body, whether good or bad, everything. Nothing is exempt. So Jesus says, how about in verse, verse 10, be faithful in small things. Look, look at verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. I, I, I love to hear what happened last Sunday at Redemption Hill. I don't, I don't know how much people give. Okay, we've kind of done that intentionally so that I can just get up here and talk about money and not know who's giving what and that type of thing. All right, so with complete integrity, I don't know what anyone gives in our church. But I do know that one kid last Sunday gave one dollar. He gave something. He, he, he gave... Um, Perhaps a lot, a lot to him. And, and, and this, this kid in our church actually provides a great example to the rest of us to be faithful in the small things. Because if, if we're not faithful in the small things, then when we have a, a lot of money, when we're earning like a, 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 what we might consider like a real salary, then we're probably not going to be very faithful with that either. So, so in our, our giving back to God and stewarding the possessions and, and the material you know, wealth that he has given us, are we strategic? Are we systematic? Are we sacrificial in what we give? Because here's the deal about money and possessions, okay? It is, it is a, a mechanism to show where our heart is before God. So we always encourage, almost every Sunday, we talk about when we give an offering, we're not saying, hey, give so we can meet our budget this year. We're saying give because God is glorious and he has been incredibly generous to us. And when we give back to him, we are just displaying what he has done for us. So we are called to be faithful in the small things. And again, this goes well beyond our money. It goes to leadership. You look in the Bible, Moses and David, the two greatest leaders of of God's people in the Old Testament were what? How did they start out? They were shepherds. Shepherds. Shepherds, that wasn't a prestigious job, but they were faithful in small things. God could entrust them greater responsibility. What about, what about your work? I know you want more responsibility. I know you want that you know, uh, promotion, but are you faithful in the small things? Do you get to work on time? Do you do all the little things that, that your boss asks you to do even when you don't think they're worth your time? Faithfulness in the small things matters. And, and, and faithfulness, even though it begins with the small things, number two, faithfulness leads to greater responsibility and true riches. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own. So again, how faithful are we being with what God has entrusted to us? When it comes to our money, a very practical question, do, do you live on a budget? Like, like do, you, do you make your money be accountable to you or, or are you just kind of controlled by, you know, whatever your desires are in the moment and you just spend because that's what you want at the time? These are very real matters. I mean, this is why we have an equipping class on money because we know like even in the church, this is a major, major, like what's happening in the culture is reflected in the church. And, and you know, it's not just that we spend what we have, but we even spend what we don't have, however nonsensical that might be. And then we get into these piles of incredible, stressful debt. Now, if that's you, don't feel like defeated and, and, and guilty this morning. Okay, that's not what this sermon is about. But, but know that through impl- applying some of these principles that God can, over time, bring you out of that. 
And so if you need some financial counsel, man, write that on the connection card. We'll, we'll, we'll throw you some people in our church that can, can offer you some encouragement in that area without any condemnation or guilt or anything like that. We're here to serve. So Jesus says, look, if, if you can't be faithful over what God entrusts to you in this life, then how, how are you going to be entrusted with true riches? The things that really uh, pertain to, to the kingdom of God, that which is infinitely valuable. And then the converse of this is true. Once again, hey, if we are faithful in the small things, then God will actually say, hey, I can trust that guy. I can trust that girl. I will give them additional responsibility and allow them to steward that under my authority. Now, number three is probably the most important of them all. In fact, it's not probably. It is the most important of them all. Faithfulness flows from a surrender to God's authority. So, so, so let me just get, make this very clear. If, if we're not faithful in the small things, and we're not faithful what, what, with what has been entrusted to us, it is a reflection that we are not willing to surrender to God's authority in our lives. And this is where Jesus picks up in verse 13. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus is quite clear, right? He, he, just, he just tells it like it is, and he says, look, if you love money, if you're chasing after money as something that has ultimate value in your life, more value than me, then, then you, can't, you can't do both. It's, it's just an, an utter impossibility. Anything that we set our heart on, whatever dominates our thoughts, our desires, our actions, that is what we serve. And that for us then has become our idol. Our functional savior, our functional God, that which controls our actions on a daily basis. So if money is your God, then you're saying, man, I will do whatever it takes to go after that six-figure salary because that's my God, that controls me. But if, but if God, on the other hand, is, is your God and you exist to live and serve and uh, live for him and serve him and worship him, then all these other things are taken care of. The Pharisees did not want to submit to the authority of Christ. They were an authority to themselves. And this is where Luke goes in verse 14. He tells us the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and what was the response to Jesus? They ridiculed him. They sneered at Jesus, and, and he catches wind of what's going on, and he says to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So Jesus says, look, your value system while it may seem right and seem okay, and you know, we're really good at justifying our own actions, like, oh, this is okay, and you know, we just kind of shift the blame when we're held accountable for certain actions. Or, but, but, but Jesus says, look, your, your values completely contradict the, the values in the heart of God. And so you, you exalt this as, as supreme, but God says, that's detestable to me. The essence of treasuring God above all things and loving what he loves is receiving his word and responding to it appropriately. So that's just how I'm trying to live my life. man. God, whatever you say, it goes for me. Now, I'm not perfect at that. I, I wish I were. I'm working on it. It's a daily, you know, kind of process to, to grow and become more like Christ. But, but for a believer, for a disciple of Christ who has heard the call of Christ and saying, hey, whoever does not renounce everything cannot follow me and be my disciple. These are radical calls that Jesus places on our lives. And so whatever Jesus calls us to do, as, as a follower of him, we're saying, hey, I'm in. I, I, I'm game. I'm running the race. And verses 16 and 17 talk about the, the importance of the word, the authority of the word of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. 
But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So Jesus here promotes the validity of both the Old Testament and the good news, which is contained for us in both the Old and New Testaments, all right? And he's saying that the law and the prophets, hey, they're not going anywhere. Heaven and earth will pass away before one word of God passes away. So in other words, he's saying God's word is eternal. It stands. And and he says that when people hear the good news and it really registers in their, their mind and in their heart, then they see it as so valuable that they would be willing to do anything to have that prize in the gospel. One of my favorite books comes from the 17th century. It was written by a pastor named Thomas Watson. And Watson is, is commenting on a parallel verse in Matthew 11 uh, that, that says this, that the, the, the kingdom of God suffers violence and violent men take it by force. And so the title of his book is Heaven Taken by Storm. And in this book, he says this. I like this. He says, our work is great. Our time is short. Our master urgent. We have need, therefore, to summon together all the powers of our souls and strive as in a matter of life and death that we may arrive at the kingdom above. So so here's the deal. When we see how valuable God is, when we see how worthy he is, how perfect, how holy, how much blessing flows from his, his nature, his character, his work, we would say, you know what? I will set aside everything so that I can have him, so I can be with him, so I can be in his presence. What else is heaven but dwelling in the very presence of God? Heaven is not a cosmic golf course. Heaven is not a mansion. Now, I'm not saying that we might not play some golf in the new heavens and new earth, all right, and have some nice houses. But, but that's, you get the point? God is the gospel. And to, to, have, to, to be able to have Christ is to say, man, I will force my way into it. And here's the beautiful thing. In this book, Watson says, how do you, how do you uh, take heaven by storm? Well, you just do it in the, through the ordinary means of grace. You, you open up this, this book that is eternal and true and life-giving and life-changing, and you take it in and you heed it and you live it out. Because listen, someone might say, hey, I love the word of God. I read it every day. I have it memorized. Like I have a thousand verses memorized. Well, good for you. But listen, if we don't live it out, then it means very little to us. Sorry, sometimes I just get a little crazy up here. (laughs) We will, when we prize heaven and have a true vision for the glories of his kingdom, we will allow absolutely nothing to stand in our way. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. And, And then Luke inserts, I believe, he inserts some of Jesus' most radical teaching in verse 9 too. Teach us what this radical obedience should look like. Because this puzzles commentators, again, scholars. Why is verse 18 before verse 19 and after verse 17, why is Jesus talking about divorce and remarriage at this point? I think Luke has given it here, placed it here, to teach us that faithfulness should characterize our greatest relationships. Number four. So what does Jesus say? He says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a divorced woman from her husband uh, commits adultery. Now, we don't have time to go to Matthew and, and, and talk about, hey, are, are there uh, permissible reasons for divorce? Okay, some you know, different scholars and churches and pastors have different opinions on that. I, I see some exceptions in what Jesus says. For, for, there are some legitimate grounds, I believe, for divorce. I would also say that that should also always, always be a last option, a last resort. And why is that? Because what is, what is marriage? 
Okay? Marriage is a covenant between two people, a commitment to become one, and it pictures forth, Paul says in Ephesians 5, the way that God loves his people, the church. So, so if, if marriage is a picture of God's love for us and God's love for us is unending and undying, then that's what should be going on in a marriage. Genesis 2 says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling, cleave to his wife, hold fast to his wife. The, the word there is that they should be glued together. We become one. And so the oneness of marriage should never be broken. That is the heart of God. Okay, so let's just make that clear which is why divorce is such a great offense because it violates this picture. It taints this picture of God's heart for his people. So listen, I I realize that there are people in our lives, people in my family who have been through divorce. And I think every single one would say, you know what? It is not an experience that any person should have to go through in this life. They would wish it upon no one. And so if, if you're going through a, a divorce or, or if that's in the cards for you in the future, know that I mean, we are here for you as a church to, to, to love you and to offer encouragement and comfort and, and counsel. But, but I, I also don't want to be naive. And the longer I'm a pastor, the longer I learn this, and I see it in my own life too. I, mean, I don't have a perfect marriage, okay? Is, is that marriages can be messy. Marriages can be difficult. None of us are as faithful as we'd like to be, hopefully, to our spouses. And that's why we need to constantly heed the word, receive the word, and seek to live out the character of Christ in our marriages. But here's, here's the deal. Every spouse... To some degree, okay, let's just not even assume that another person has to come into the picture, although sometimes that is the case. Every spouse has thoughts of, well, if my husband, my wife would only do this. If if they would only be a little different in this area, then, you know, our marriage would be really great and I would really be able to love them more. You ever have these thoughts? If you would clean up a little more around the house, if they would work a little harder, they would stop being so lazy. If, you know, just on and on and on, we could go here. And as the, the proverbial saying goes, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? So we think, hey, we can just kind of exchange our spouse in like a baseball card and get a new one, and it'll be a lot better in life. But what, is, what does God call us to? You know what faithfulness looks like in marriage? This is why Paul says the husband's husband love your wife as Christ has loved the church and gave himself for her that he might wash her through the water of the word, sanctifying her, setting her apart. So what we need is not a better spouse to go looking for a better spouse. What we need is to make our spouse better. How do we do that? Man, we, we pray for them. We're patient with them. We display Christ to them. We, we own the fact that, hey, we don't have it all together either. And so we need the power of truth and the power of God's love and the power of, of God's grace to be very present in our marriages so that we can be faithful to our spouse and say, you know what, I am so committed to you that even if you are imperfect, which we all are, right? Just nudge your husband or wife. Don't, hus- husbands, don't nudge your wife. That would be good. Um, but, but, but we're all imperfect, but... But God places us together so that we can make one another better, more like Christ. So, man, if you take nothing away from the sermon, how about faithfulness in the small things, by the way, in your marriages will really help the bigger things? How about you just make a commitment to make your spouse better? By God's grace. He's the one that makes us better. He just uses us as instruments in his hands. So there is a call here in verses 1 through 18 to be a faithful steward by keeping this big picture in view that we're heading to a final destination. Now, number two, the last parable encourages us to be ready for our final destination through repentance and faith. 
Jesus continues to address the dangers of riches by telling the story of two people, a rich man and a poverty-stricken man named Lazarus. In verse 19, the description starts. It says, There was a poor man who was clothed in purple and in fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, so we cannot have a more contrasting picture of this rich man who dresses in purple and fine linens. Okay, now I know some of you men, you can, you know, rock some purple and look really good in that. I probably can't do that. But, but, but in the first century, that was really cool, okay? That meant that you were like, you had it going on, you had some game, you had some wealth. It was like a signif- signification of royalty, all right? So it says that he, he dressed in purple and fine linen and he feasted sumptuously. So whatever, you know, this lineup might be for you, you know, like breakfast, ball square diner, you know, in Somerville. And then, you know, maybe we'll go to Station Landing for lunch and have some Regina, some Cold Stone. And if you're really hungry, you go to Five Guys too. And then, you know, for supper, it's like downtown, you know, maybe legal seafood or Union Oyster House. It's like, man, he ate whatever he wanted to eat. He had that much money. And, and this, this man is just... Every day he was just, you know, living life lavishly while this poor man who was laid at his gate. I mean, we can imagine that the rich man probably stepped over him day after day after day, seeing his need, but apparently never meeting his need. Lazarus says he had had nothing but open sores that the dogs would come and, and lick, which is just a, a despicable disgrace of a, of a life. I mean, we think of dogs and we're, they're man's best friend and they're like the status symbol that we, you know, celebrities hold and walk around with. I mean, that's not the first century view of, of, of dogs, all right? They were, they were viewed as impure and scavengers. So, so, so what is the result of this? Well, verse 22, it says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Insert heaven there. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, and being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So, so the rich man here is culpable, not because he had wealth, but because he did not use his wealth to love God and love his neighbor, most specifically his neighbor who laid right there in his front yard named Lazarus. And so when it, when it comes for them both to reach their final destinations in life, the rich man finds himself in hell because he did not apparently know God in this saving manner because his life didn't reflect that. He he lived selfishly. He lived for himself. He lived contrary to God's desire and God's will for his life. And so he finds himself in hell. That's where people who rebel against God with their lives will, will go one day. But Lazarus, on the other hand, finds himself in heaven. 
God has mercy on him. And, and so with this, with this topic, I just want us to spend a few moments thinking about the doctrine of hell. Okay, this is, this is a doctrine that's quite, you know, um, unpopular these days. You know, man, if God is loving, then how could he send people to hell? We have these types of questions. But Jesus teaches on hell again and again and again through the Gospels. And so we just, at Redemption Hill, man, we just try to stick to the Bible. We just teach what the Bible teaches, and when it comes up, we, we talk about it. And these are, these are incredibly weighty matters. This is about the finish line. This is about our final destination. This is about heaven and hell, life and death. And so hell is a real place. And it is a place of horrible torment and anguish. Hell is a place of final judgment for the wicked who persist in their rebellion against God. It has been defined as the eternal sovereign justice of God exacted upon evildoers. So you have these radical pictures, these images, I think most probably more symbolic than literal, okay? But these, these, these pictures of, of fire and utter darkness and the place where the worm does not die, the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, incredible anguish and torment. And, and it's, it's not that perhaps some of these things, I mean, hell could be a physically hot place because it's not going to be a pleasant place at all. But I think that Peter Toon, he's an Anglican theologian, I think that he helps us here because we get so focused on that stuff and we miss, miss the, the more important matters that, 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 that the reality of hell uh, confront us with. He says, fire, darkness, and perdition point to a spiritual reality more terrible than the means used to symbolize and highlight it. So in other words, we get all caught up with, hey, people are going to burn in hell. But, but, but what, is, what is worse than that, okay? I mean, what, what does that mean? I mean, people are not going to, 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 to be, you know, incinerated, right? I mean, this, this is an eternal conscious punishment that people will face. So, so all of these images, I believe, point to the desperate nature of what it means to be separated from God forever. So if God is infinitely glorious and infinitely good, infinitely kind, infinitely loving, infinitely gracious, then to be separated from him and all of his goodness and blessing is what makes hell hell. And hell is a fixed place where no one will escape. Notice that Jesus says there is, there is a chasm fixed. It is an unbridgeable chasm. Hey, send him over to help me. To, to the one who had no mercy now wants mercy, and he says you can't receive it now. Your opportunity is past. Which this undercuts the doctrine of annihilationism. In other words, some people believe that, that those who go to hell will one day just be annihilated and, and they won't suffer eternally. Okay, don't, definitely don't see that in the Bible. And then it also undercuts the idea of post-mortem salvation. In other words, after someone dies, they can then decide to follow Christ. Don't see that one in the Bible either. Jesus says that there is a chasm fixed. So what do we do with this? Hopefully we avoid hell at all costs through belief in the scriptures. Listen, I don't, I don't talk, I'm not, you know, and I don't think Jesus, by the way, I don't think Jesus is talking about flames and gnashing of teeth and, and weeping to try to manipulate people into heaven against their will. He wants them to see the gravity, the eternal consequences of what life looks like separated from God but the, the, the better message of the gospel is that though God's wrath falls on those who continue in their rebellion, that Christ died on the cross drinking the cup of God's wrath, incurring our judgment so that if we would look to him and believe and have faith in him, then we can have eternal life and be reconciled to God. 
So that's why at Redemption Hill, yes, we talk about hell, but we probably talk more about heaven than hell. That's why the very first sermon we ever preached was what? Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has so that he can buy the field. That is heaven. That is the kingdom of God. It is an inestimable treasure. To have God is to have it all. So when we see that, we would gladly forsake everything in our life to have him, thereby forsaking the consequences of death and hell. So if you have not considered that one day you will give an account to God for your life, then I would, I would beg with you, I would plead with you to say, God, I need you. I repent. I turn from the way that I'm living so that I might place my faith and trust in Christ and have eternal life. This is, this is what the rich man wants. Now he's saying, hey, look, if, if you'll send someone back to them to warn them, then perhaps they will repent. Repentance just means a change of mind, a change of heart that leads to a change of action, which is necessary for salvation. Repentance and faith, a gift from God by his grace. But what, is, what does Abraham say? He says, you know what? They have, they have Moses and, and the prophets. So if, if they will not believe the word of God, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. And these words at the end of Luke 16 hang throughout the rest of the gospel. Why? Because Luke will tell us of a man, Jesus Christ, who was crucified and rose from the dead, that all who look to him and believe and turn from their idolatry to worship him can have life. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. This is the gospel. That's the good news. There is an unbridgeable chasm when we reach our final destination. And for those who are in Christ, we'll always eternally experience the increasing joy of being in the presence of God. That is a wise decision. That is what will lead to plenty of shrewdness with your life and faithfulness with your life when you see how great God is in the gospel, how he took our punishment that we deserve so that we might have life and not death through him. So have you received this life that God gives? And are you living in light of his return one day? Are you, are, are you living with the end in view by being faithful over all things in your life, great and small? This is the call of Christ in Luke 16. Let's pray together. God, we ask that you would help us to grasp the seriousness of life and death. That we wouldn't just pass over quickly the fact that our life has a final destination. I know we get so caught up in today and caught up in, in uh, all these kind of more immediate, they seem more immediate, more trivial matters. And so, God, I pray just in these moments that you would help us to consider eternity. That anyone who, who isn't settled up their accounts with you has not received the forgiveness, the debt-canceling uh, sacrifice of Christ, that they would just say, hey, Jesus, you, you are the Savior of the world, and I want you to be my Savior. I pray that you would enable them to do that. And God, for all of us, I pray that, that you would uh, help us to be faithful to you. Teach us greater faithfulness, faithfulness in our relationships, faithfulness in our stewardship of money and material possessions, faithfulness with our time, faithfulness with our talents, our skills. Help us to serve you and serve others. And God, as we sing this song, it's a hymn of declaration that, that you are our great rescuer and we have life in you. And because of that, you are infinitely worthy of our praise. So God, all of this, everything we do on a Sunday, it's just a precursor to what we'll do for all eternity for those who are in Christ. So may we sing with great joy now because you have brought salvation to us in Christ. We pray in his name, amen.